Hi. Greetings, mortals. I bid you welcome back to Dice and Suffering and back to Dice and Mutterings. <laughs> I sounded far too smug when I said that, but I, I was very fond of the name when I came up with it, so... Take pride in what you create. This is another episode of Dice and Mutterings, which is basically just where I ramble. <laughs> I just ramble on for like a while about various things, but people seem to enjoy me talking about the end of my D&D campaign into the waste and kind of some of the plot threads we didn't cover and the decisions I made to actually choose to end it. Like, it was an involved process. Feel free to go listen to it if you haven't, but this week, well it's not really this week, this month, this random occurrence of time because I'm recording this on like a Monday evening randomly rather than with any like actual planning or forethought. I basically woke up and went, mm, yeah, I kind of want to record. So here we are. This one is going to be about storytelling more than anything. It's as we got into a bit last time, we know, you know that I, I love create I am a creative person I am a creative writer I build characters and worlds and plot threads and the occasional horrible twisted idea that would probably get a therapist very concerned but one question I do get is kind of the process of coming up with all these things because Obviously, like, running a tabletop campaign is very daunting a task. It's daunting. It's a big ask. Especially because you've got, apart from learning the system, which is a whole Herculean task of its own, and managing your players and helping them out with building things, you also have to make the world. And I don't... I think that's something that people don't quite recognize of how difficult it is because I mean everything from the names of the cities the people the roads where the bandits attack all of everything down to every blade of grass every grain of sand is tends to be carefully thought out by your GM or panic or panickedly improvised when you ask them a question they weren't expecting. Which, you know, mood. But it's... It's kind of the question of how to build worlds. And there's no right answer. There's no correct way to build a world, to build a character. But I'm going to talk a bit about my process with all of this. Especially because, obviously, with all the stuff I've done with the Dungeons and Junkies crew, I've made a lot of characters. And as I've mentioned before, this is like my sixth campaign that's coming soon, Bloodbound. Because we've recorded the first few episodes of Bloodbound now. And it's... I've... Like, you have to start from scratch a lot. You kind of go, okay, what race do I want to play? What class do I want to try? 
and then you have to tailor it to the world and I think there's a lot of differences with that so we'll start with character creation because that's a bit I mean that's a bit more specific so in my case I have like if I go in I'm gonna open up a folder on my computer obviously you can't see it because this is a podcast you colossal idiot Caitlin yeah if I look through here I have about 30 different character sheets obviously I haven't played all of these in stuff that you guys may have listened to over on Visionaries Global Media some of them are bosses who I had to actually roll stats and things out for that my party fought during Into the Waste like Lord Argon or the NPC Eren or Josh Kalsaru Oh, shebang. They are... Obviously in making them it wasn't just about stats, it was about giving them a role, a background, an idea. And like what I can go into more now is Tinker. Tinker... <coughs> Tinker, for those who have listened to the Edenoi Chronicles over on Visionaries, is my rock gnome phoenix sorcerer who I brought to the table as kind of a partly like a buff to the existing party of Alili and Rain because both both of them were all three of them actually were very new to running D&D and to making characters and to understanding all the checks and stuff they had to do. I don't think they added any attack bonuses for like a solid four sessions or something before they all went, oh I have to add things, that makes more sense. I think they fought against an awakened shrub for like 20 minutes or something. Which is very funny to me. But I brought Tinker partly to be a... Partly to act as a boon to the party because sorcerers are very much kind of a... They are the Swiss army knife of D&D classes when it comes to being able to do a lot of things. Larkids jumped up on my lap and immediately making himself known. I'm trying to record, buddy. You can come cuddle as long as you behave. Yes. Sigh. But Tinker originally didn't really have any of a backstory when I first made him because obviously this was like my first few sessions with this new group and we'd become really close now but originally I wasn't sure if it was going to work out. You can't always guarantee if everyone's chemistry is going to gel together or not. And obviously they had already started something. I didn't... I was quite happy to be just a one-off guest if that's what they wanted. But hey, we're here now. And I actually gave Tinker a backstory really before we went into season two. 
kind of... Tinker at the very beginning was definitely more like... Tiny Fire Yoda, is how I described him. He literally walked into a clearing and went, Do you know where the library is? And it's like, my dude, we're in the middle of a forest. How the fuck did you get here? But... I gave Tinker... I kind of... I'd played him for a while and... Obviously he's caring and he's loyal and he adopted a baby manticore and it ended up staying with him the entire time till it was full grown, which, you know, Matt definitely didn't regret. Not at all. Mm -hmm. No way, Jose. <laughs> That's still funny to me. <laughs> but Tinker, I kind of went with the idea that... <sighs> to me... I mean, well-adjusted people don't tend to go on adventures into the great unknown and face horrible perils when, you know, they could be at home raising their family or or they could just nope out in the middle and go, yeah, no, this is not worth the money at the end. I, I'd rather not die, thanks, bye. So I kind of needed something to tinker, to help... I don't know, helped establish him as an actual person rather than as kind of a plot-propelling device, which is very much what I was using him for. Tinker is a complicated character. And to anyone who's listened to season two, there are there is an episode based in his hometown where they're being attacked and needs he needs to deal with it. And he goes and it's shown that like this town like celebrates what the event they celebrate and they glorify the event that drove him away from home in the first place. Like he is treated like a small child is genuinely like in awe of him. And he doesn't feel good about it. Because to me, Tinker always felt kind of like the the Uncle Ben quote from Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. And he is a powerful sorcerer. But Tinker originally couldn't do any magic. He was not... He did not seem magically inclined. He came from a family of jewelers. He was very good at crafting things with his hands, and he sought out knowledge the way water is drawn into a sponge. It is a constant thing. He read every book he could, he tried to learn every language he could. And he read a few about magic, and could never really grasp it, despite the fact that he knew there was magic in his bloodline, because that's how sorcerers work, it's inherited rather than making a pact with someone. And it just didn't come to him and he thought, maybe my generation isn't able to do it. But he kept trying and, you know, it got there. And But for him, he didn't really get a solid idea of his abilities until he wandered out of town too late one day. Some bandits came across him and thought, hey, these guys make jewels and jewellery and expensive things, like, fairly easily. We can probably ransom him back to the village and get, you know, 
get some good cash for it. Standard bandit scheme. But obviously Tinker refused to play ball and in order to show that they were serious and to, you know, also stop him from trying to escape every five minutes because the little bugger kept picking the lock and getting out, they smashed his hands with a hammer. Like full on broke the bones in his fingers. And in that moment, every kind of bit of magic he had exploded out of him and his control over fire was revealed as he essentially burnt alive the entire group of bandits which was like 11 people or something and got to like he has survived and he escaped and eventually his hands healed though my headcanon is he's always had kind of little lots of tiny scars from where the bones kind of pushed up against the skin. He survived, but at the cost of taking people's lives. And he was celebrated for that in his home village. Whilst for him, he hadn't been home in like 60 years because he despised himself for what he did. And I think it is a... I don't think it was a motivation... It was a motivation to learn control, it was a motivation to be better, to contribute, to try and understand his abilities and be able to try and make a difference as retribution for the lives he took and the shame he feels. And that really suited him to me. I kind of wrote this out and sent it to Matt and he was like, oh god. <laughs> We're just like, oh, oh no. And it's, I think that's the thing about storytelling, especially with individual characters, is there's always a difference between ones that you haven't played yet and you're trying to give motivations for in advance versus ones you've had a bit of experience with and know roughly where you want them to go. Tinker ended up, near the end of season two, he... Demos, which is what he named the Manticore, got injured during a fight and Demos and yelled out in pain. And Tinker, the loyal bugger he is, immediately turned to see who had hurt Demos, who was basically his family at this point, and lashed out. And the thing is, with things like Fireball, is they are area of effect spells. So although this, like, basically deleted the robot douchebag guy who had hurt Demos in the first place, it also took out a group of civilians who had just been there. And I eventually chose to retire Tinker, and I came to Season 3 with Tempest instead, because... To me, the story arc for Tinker was either he was going to get a decent grasp on his powers and kind of forgive himself, or he was going to snap and hurt someone again, and he made the choice in that, in accepting that maybe he was too dangerous to be around society and to actively adventure. So. 
I mean, the end of, apart from the absolute madness that was the end of Izanoi, <laughs> but he chose to retire. Like, he built, like, a log cabin in the woods and <laughs> was quite happy there. And I think we talked about it when talking about ending a campaign, but knowing when to say goodbye to a character as well, and knowing when their story is done is the correct thing to do. Because obviously not everything can work out this way. Like a lie. The ending I gave a lie, if you've listened to Tales from Autorbia, is one I think fits her. Because she wanted peace. She wanted, well, she wanted peace for herself, not really peace for everyone else. She didn't care that much about that. But in the end, she accomplished what she could and chose the, hey, yeah, I've done enough. That's enough. I can stop now. I can rest. And with all, all the characters I've made, all of them have... Oh, I mean, every every character you make in tabletop games tends to have some form of underlying motivation. Otherwise, why are they there? <laughs> you have people motivated by trauma. You have people motivated by greed. You have people motivated by family members. It's... You have people who want to do the best they can for the honour of their religion. It's... A complex thing, especially for a GM to kind of balance. Because obviously you've got to balance everyone in the party's motivations and weave in both the environmental storytelling of your world but also personal motivations so the party is invested. Like, if I look at my list of characters on here, we have a good range, like... I've got Damien, obviously, is fueled by rage and spite. My boy. <laughs> but more than anything, he's born out of survival. So he will keep going down this path if he believes it's the best way for him to get back to wherever he wants to be. To get to someplace safe. And to live another day, even if it's out of pure spite. Which 90% of his decisions are. Tinker wanted control. Tempest just wanted what was best for her family. And to explore the world. Ali partly wanted revenge. And then wanted some redemption for herself. Shard wanted to find Cory and to understand what the hell was going on. <laughs> it's... It's interesting. When you make a character, you... Carrie and I have discussed this in great depth. But... You tend to give a bit of yourself to them, and... 
like, I full on made a list of my characters at the time, and this was like, I think it was like a year ago or something? But you fully give a part of your personality and a part of your experiences to the character because it does help you relate to them and it does help you build an idea of what they're like beyond just numbers on a page. And for example, like I'll read I'll read a few of these. So Shard from from Oshia, from Island Murderland, is embodies my sense of loyalty. I am a fiercely loyal individual. So much so, like, if I- the few people I do let in, I will fight to the end tooth and nail for. Because as much as I have trust issues, it's also- once you are one of my people, you are one of my people, regardless of whether we don't speak for months, or whether we talk every day. You are one of mine, and I will fight for you, to, and ensure your happiness. Shard is like that, and you can see it with their, their love for their son, their friendship with Harlin, their bond with Oberyn, their Slightly, I mean, they tolerate Charlie and Moira, but also they are, they will still take a bullet for them. It is, they will, the way I phrased it in this little document I'm looking at is, despite the difficulties they have faced, they burn bright for those they love, even when their own light flickers. Damien, my furious, furious boy, is, I mean, I've described him like an onion. He's like an ogre, and an onion, and a cake. He has layers. But Damien is who I could become if I didn't have morals. Because he is fiercely independent. He drives not to rely on anyone, to be self-deficient, to survive. Obviously, people have betrayed me. I've had my share of toxic friendships and relationships. I've had people hurl cruel words that I still think about. I've had events that I really wish hadn't happened happened to me. But Damien is so centered into my idea of not losing control. The idea of losing control, of losing himself and the identity he's forged from all this pain terrifies him and it terrifies me but i think that's part of what makes his character interesting to people and it makes like those little tidbits where you see a bit more to him than just the anger so fascinating to people because we all are I mean, we all are deeply disturbed in some way or another. We all have wounds. We all have scars, whether they're mental or physical. And I think with creation and with making a character and telling a story, it's partly like you're 
trying to tell your own story of your own life in bits and pieces such that you don't overwhelm yourself you don't panic because you're you're just reliving the worst moments but it's bit by bit you gain some acceptance and some understanding of yourself and in witnessing your friends characters do the, do something similar like i can see bits of my friends in the characters they play and i won't like go into my dramatic revelations with them because that's their business that's their choices and their history but I feel I understand them better by looking at their characters. And I think they feel the same with me. And I think... I don't know. Writing backstory and history and... No creative idea is entirely unfound. Is entirely original. That's the thing. It's like... 90% of art is based off something else. Because that's how ideas work. You see something and you come up with something. There is that link between it. And it's... Like modern art. Some aspects of modern art are taken from older avenues of art. Some parts of architecture are inspired by nature. Games. Some like concepts for games are based on mythology. It's... A cycle of creativity that also occurs in creating like characters and backstories and things because they are in my case they're formated from my own experiences and sure I'll turn it a bit more fantasy and a bit more like ooh I don't know the orcs came and butchered your village or something but it is everything is based in some form of truth And it kind of reminds me of, um... It's like... It's like the truth... Oh, I need to remember this quote. Quote from Doctor Who. Oh. Yeah, from the season 9 finale, Doctor Who. Hellbent. You said memories become stories when we forget them. Maybe those stories become songs. And it is so much that you wonder of how much a mythology is based on events that actually happen to people, but have then been told and told again so much so that the truth has been exaggerated or distorted. But there's still that grain of an actual thing that happened. And you can probably follow back the thread of a lot of character backstories in like the more famous in the more famous like uh, words creators like critical role if you look at the character backstories i'm sure you'll find a novel or a web series or a comic or mythology or i know a, a stupid shower thoughts tweet <laughs> that could theoretically have sparked this entire beloved character. And that's the thing with storytelling. And that's the thing with character creation. It is 
there is nothing wrong with being inspired by someone else. There is nothing wrong by being inspired by someone else's work, by what they do, by what they love. There's nothing wrong with listening to a legend and going, yeah, I, I'd like to be like that. And I think a similar thing applies to world building and to creating entire campaigns and entire universes, multiverses for your players to d dabble around in. It is, it's hard. I will say that with out of fact. It is really fucking hard. But it's so rewarding as well. For example, Bloodbound is my newest campaign. Into the Waste, the world it was based in, was... Like, the Lonely Vale, I believe it was called was a world I came up with for a creative writing task I got given at like GCSE which is like the exams you take when you're like 15, 16 to anyone who's not from the UK and it was it kind of came back to me one day I was going through my hard drive and moving files across from my old laptop to my new one when I started university and I found like all these details on a world I hypothesized and these islands and the idea of this like corrupt zone. And I took it and I built an entire world and a functioning like functioning ecosystems and commerce and like a science community. All of these institutions that require far too much thought than you thought it would <laughs> to go into. But I went for it, because I could see a world coming from it. Bloodbound kind of came to me in bits and pieces over the last year. Because, obviously, I made the choice to end Into the Waste, and I started thinking about what I wanted my new world to be. And I knew I wanted to do something different. I knew I didn't want, like, the traditional... I didn't want to do the normal, yep, you meet in a tavern, get on with it. I didn't want the standard fantasy world, if that made sense. I wanted there to be, I mean, I've always been about high stakes as it is, but when coming up with that central mechanic and the idea of using blood as fuel and magic being inherently tied to people's DNA, that came to me as a random thought. Actually, that came to me when I made a really shit meme. <laughs> like, there's that scene in Family Guy where someone walks in. Someone walks in and goes, says like X, Y, Z, and the other person, and then Quagmire, I think, goes, why the hell would you walk in and just say that? And I made a copy of that meme. Let me find it. I have it on my phone. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I have far too many good quality memes on my phone that are just the D&J crew just taking the shit out of each other. Yeah. Yeah, Quackmire walks in and goes and goes like XYZ 
And then Peter goes, who the fuck starts a conversation like that? I just sat down. And my equivalent was, Damien, if I cast heat metal on the iron in your blood, how long can I draw out your death for? Which, you know, Damien, what the fuck? <laughs> Caitlin, what the fuck? But it was the idea of, like, spells and magic interacting with the materials in your... in, like, an actual person's form. And obviously there's been, like, shitposts and things about the idea that casting control water when we as humans are, like, two-thirds water. <laughs> Which is, you know, mildly horrifying and you can drown a person. And it's whether you could control their blood, whether you could control their organs, whether, like, using things like stone shape and that when, say, like, someone's hand is attached to it, whether you could stone shape and, like, meld their arm to the floor. It's shit like that. And it sparked an idea in me. I kind of went, huh. How would magic interact with someone if it was inherently part of your DNA? Like, if every single living thing had some kind of magic. So much so that it was, like, built into the building blocks of creation. And in this case, I, like, put it as most living things tend to have it connected to the hemoglobin in their blood. With things that don't have blood, like plant life matters and things, it would be, like, in the mitochondria of the cells. And I thought to myself, hey, what is this? Like, if, if everyone's magic, could that be harnessed as a power source? And then the whole idea of like withdrawing blood and more powerful magical beings being like a better source for the same amount. The idea of like having the same size battery, but it able to last a lot longer. Cue, cue the Duracell bunny adverts. Not sponsored. <laughs> but um, I thought about that and I kind of went, okay, so how does that work for the immune system? Because obviously, your immune system response is unique to your own body. Your body knows what pathogens and what things are supposed to be coming into it, and anything that doesn't meet that criteria is, like, scrutinized. And if it's deemed to be hostile, then you, you tend to get sick because your body is fighting off the infection. And I thought, okay, what about magic? Because obviously, magic that's not your own, your body would potentially see as hostile, even if it's meant to be healing magic. And I thought to myself, okay, so what does magic break down into? And then you go into the idea that in Dungeons & Dragons, different spells can be cast by different classes. There's a lot of crossover, like some spells can be cast by wizards and sorcerers, but not clerics. Some can be cast by druids, but not warlocks. It's that crossover between it. And obviously, with the more homebrew content and with all the, like, the additions and things to the 5e, to the 5th edition, and things like Tasha's Cauldron and that, it's basically every class can do some kind of healing stuff, even if it's just like a pool of hit points. Or sacrificing, sacrificing key points for health. 
or using like fighters ability to essentially go no i won't die thanks bye and like i actually have a um document in in my world building google doc that i sent to my players before we started it's like 25 pages long or something and it has info on basically everything in there but one of the things it has is a table of all the different classes that could be played like including things like blood hunter and like spellless rangers and all of that and who they could give healing magic to so it's whether they could give magic, who they could receive magic from. It's similar to, it's similar to the um, donating blood, which I do, and everyone who can should do. It'll help. It helps a lot of people, and you know, it's basically like, here's about an hour of my time every few months, and you get like a biscuit and some orange juice out of it. So, you know, go give blood, help people, woohoo! But. It's the idea that not everyone can receive and receive blood from every donation type. Like, I think I'm like AB... AB positive? AB negative? I'm AB something. And... Obviously that means... I can't... My blood doesn't go... Like, blood doesn't go to everyone. There's a universal receiver and a universal donor. There are people who could have any kind of blood. Any kind of human blood, just to clarify, <laughs> before you start getting weird on me. Any kind of human blood worked with, and then there are people who could give their blood to anyone. And I kind of put that in context of magic. And the idea that, yeah, maybe a warlock warlock's system, a warlock's magic. Maybe their pact would mean that they wouldn't be able to accept healing from a cleric, for example. Kind of the whole, you know the whole joke of like, ah, holy light, <laughs> bad for me. Like that kind of thing, is whether that would work. And it's questionable. It's, it was such a fascinating concept that I built up my entire world around it. I came up with the whole blood focus and then I thought, okay, what would a world powered by that look like? Then I started thinking, okay, what inventions would have been made? What wouldn't? Why wouldn't they have been made? And then you start to come up with things like, hey, yeah, trains exist. But the internal combustion engine doesn't. You're like, okay, why? You didn't have to come up with a reason why that hasn't happened yet. Because if you're basing if you're basing it on some aspects of reality and some of the some of the norms we're used to in daily life versus like complete fantasy land, you then have to think of a reason why. So in my case, the internal combustion engine doesn't exist because some of the metals and alloys required to create it and required for it to function properly don't exist like they don't exist in this realm they are not found naturally 
And I made Guayer as like a... I took inspiration from Norse mythology and I made it like a disc, essentially. <laughs> Terry Pratchett probably had an influence as well with Discworld. But I made it this like disc with definitive edges and a definitive barrier that, you know, stops people floating off into space. And I found that really interesting because it was the idea that if you... If you live on Earth, I don't know, maybe Martians are listening to this. If you are, hello, how are you? Hope you're having a good day. <laughs> but it was the idea that on Earth we could... I could take off, I could leave my house and make my way through various transportations and walking and, I don't know, swimming eternally across the world and right back to where I started if I kept going. People have circumnavigated the globe. That's the whole thing about doing it in 80 days. And that is possible. That is... Because we know the world is round. Come at me, flat earthers. You can start and stop in the same place. Whilst in a world where there is an edge, you can fall off into the void. No one knows what's down there. Well, I do, but I'm the GM. That's my job. No one knows what's down there, but there is a definitive end rather than a new beginning which is which limits resources which limits expandability and obviously like I've described in Bloodbound that there's like a massive wall circling you know to stop people from I don't know sleepwalking and then yeeting themselves into the abyss or livestock just kind of going wee because you know some of them aren't the brightest but it's the idea that if you change small things, and I think that's a big thing with like any form of storytelling, it's the idea that if I change this one small fact about my daily life, what would be different? So like, Guayer doesn't have a moon. It's not like a direct carbon copy of the Earth. There's no moon. There's no ocean. There's no tides. There are rivers and there are waterfalls and there are lakes. But there's no actual salt water, which means all like the marine life doesn't exist. All the all the saltwater-based marine life doesn't exist. Because that habitat doesn't happen. As things like there aren't space programs, there aren't like people flying off into the sky. Because, you know, there's a barrier. Gods walk amongst people because I have the idea of reincarnation into mortal forms every so often. And those forms can die and then they... Obviously the god themselves doesn't die, it's just the physical manifest. It's all these small things that kind of come to you over time that you can cobble together into whether it's a fully coherent world or whether it's kind of patchworky. It's still yours. It's still your creation. And you should still be proud of it. Because you always hear of people starting New Year's resolutions being like, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to go to the gym every day. I'm going to conquer the planet. I don't know what people do for New Year's. But it's 
the process of creating a world, creating all these little bits, doing things like going, okay, what's the transportation system like? Do they have banks? How does finances work? Is it a trade-based economy? Is it goods and services? What's what exists and what doesn't? What's the level of education? Do any of the races described in like the various 5e manuals no longer exist? Who's gone extinct? What's happening? What's their end goal? What's the idea? And I think there's a lot there that even if you only figure out, even if you only think of a concept for two little things, whether you just figure out that, I don't know, trains are powered by the souls of the dead and that houses aren't made out of bricks because, like, clay hasn't... They haven't figured out how to fire clay yet. Even if you only figure out those two things, that's still a massive leap in creativity from where you were to where you are. And that's worth being proud of. And I always find this fascinating when I look in... When I play in my friends' worlds just to see, one, how different they are from one another. From Oshia to Autorvia to Edenoi to Orphar. The worlds are so different and so unique and so bustling with tiny details that most players won't touch on in a standard play. You meet NPCs who maybe have a huge impact on the history of the world, but you won't know that because you, your paths don't cross or your paths don't intersect at that point in time. You read history books about events that have happened long before you even existed. I know it's, it's an honor to witness a lot of these things. And often I do tend to have like mad conspiracy board theory of what everything's going on and what everything leads up to and all of that. <laughs> but it's when you see these things that add up together and you listen back and you hear things that you missed before, it is fascinating to see the creative process because you kind of get the eye, you can see where something sparked and then how it's trickled over and is mentioned and hinted at and kind of deliberately I know, it's always interesting to see the signposting where you look back and go, oh, shit. <laughs> this has been a thing for a while and I just, I haven't noticed until hindsight. Hindsight is a bitch. Ugh, brilliant. Now I think with all of these ideas about creation and storytelling and all of that, it's a lot of a lot of what I enjoy and this is just an opinion I enjoy environmental storytelling a lot it's what I love to see in games especially like, I love to see those little background details of like after an event after like a big story event has happened and you can actually see the impact in the environment around you rather than just in a cutscene it's like if that house is on fire in a cutscene why would it be fine supposedly the next morning when no there would still be like smoke and ash in the air there would still be like the people would still be trying to put it out with buckets of water and rehoming those who lived there and all of that 
that kind of attention to background detail is something I love and it's something I do a lot in my campaigns. Like, if the party had gone back during Into the Waste to those kind of towns near the border, they would have seen the effect. They would have seen the corruption's effect. They would have seen, like, buildings start to collapse. They would have seen the sands being darker, life struggling to grow, plants dying, animals getting sick. And it's like, when you can see, like, an insidious presence in a town, but only not through, like, a dramatic person stood on a stage going, hello, yes, I am evil, look at me. But through fear in the residence, reluctance to talk to the adventuring party. Maybe it's even like weird prices at the market. A queue for the well. An odd presence of military. It's all these small things that add up to your story, to the creation, to the, st to the tale you want to tell. That make all the difference? Because you forget that, like, a lot of people tend to forget that it's not just your players who, like, are submerged in the world, who are living in the world. It's not just their characters that live there, it's the billions of other people there that you are, you the GM, are responsible for. It's kind of, is the orphanage in this town doing alright, or are they struggling? Is the elderly couple that runs the church in good health? Are the local kind of bandits harassing a, harassing a merchant? What's, what's going on around them? Because, like, I've discovered this a lot with Blades as well. There is so much that you can glean about a situation by those outside of it. And I think my players have started to realise that too. Maybe. Hopefully. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. But it is fascinating to see. And it's also when you look at like player arcs and like character development. It's not, it's not always the big traumatic dramatic events. Like the story scripted ones. Yes, they have an impact on the character because that was the plan, but it's also all the small decisions they've made along the way. Like, maybe someone was a complete asshole at the beginning, but by the end, tempered through loss and through witnessing the impact the party had had on all these small communities. Maybe when an orphan runs up to them begging for money, two story arcs in, like 20 episodes in, instead of telling the child to piss off, maybe they'll give them a copper. Because they've seen... Like, they've seen the worst of people and they want that not to be the future for every child. It is a complex mess. I describe... I describe my method of building campaigns and stories and characters as a chaotic clusterfuck, <laughs> really. I, I'm like a whirlwind when it comes to character things. It is ideas and concepts that just kind of fling themselves at me and then I try and wrestle them into some form of order. But it is a joy to do. Because you see, you see something form out of nothing. 
the same for anyone who probably has a hands-on creative skill. Like, you go from tapping a few chords on the piano to suddenly a whole song and a melody comes out of it. And you look back and go, I was just playing around, and that now I have this masterpiece. People who go from doodling to producing entire comic strips, it's brilliant. And it's mad, and it's infuriating at times, and it can drive you around the wall. It can drive you around the bend, and you just... You go through draft after draft, but then you land on something. And you go, yes, this is the story I wanted to tell. And in my case, I'm very lucky to have four phenomenal friends who are willing to tell that story with me. And to contribute to it and be delighted and to roll with the punches and ride the roller coaster of emotion I throw their way. Not with like reluctance, but with utter conviction in my abilities. And I'm so fucking grateful for that. Because I don't think I'd believe in my work and be as proud of what I do and the stories I tell if it wasn't for them being right there. And going, yeah, that that twist was cool. Oh, that NPC's a dick, but I love him. Oh, I can't wait for this episode. I can't wait for this to be revealed. It's... Again, storytelling... You can produce stories on your own. You can produce stories with people. But it's kind of... To have people to share that enthusiasm with is a fucking treat. It is a balm to all those little demons in your head going, This is shit, you suck me. It is a joy because... I guess it's nice to hear someone apart from you... It's nice to hear someone defend what you do that isn't just you arguing with your own inner demons and going, this isn't bad, I'm proud of this, I worked hard on this. And for someone else to step in and go, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And to point at it and go, even though I, this only impacted one person, that is enough. That's good enough. And whether what you produce, what you create, what you write is only read by you in wherever you work whether it's in a cafe or in your bedroom or under the covers or at like three in the morning <laughs> because that's the only time you can be creative as long as you are content as long as you are happy with what you have made if it's had a genuine impact on you then it was well worth everything you put into it in the process Anyways, that's all for now. I've been talking to myself for about an hour, and I have a sleeping cat on one lap, and I have another cat demanding food, so. Believe in yourselves. I know that's hard for me to- that's hard for you to hear, and probably stupid of me to say, because, you know, I don't believe in myself half the time, but so much creativity and wonderful ideas and mechanics and concepts have come from people who just kind of go, hey, what about this? And you'd be surprised at the reception you'll get. You'll be surprised about how many people want to hear from you. Hey, even I want to hear from you. So look after yourselves. Look after each other. 
and just even if it's a sentence or a page keep making some keep creating keep telling a story because someone wants to listen thank you for listening to this episode of Dyson Suffering if you enjoyed it check out everyone involved in the description and find the rest of the episodes on all podcasting platforms or at themindgame.org and may your dice rolls go well though we all know they won't (laughs) 